On Sunday, the 40,000th American passed of COVID-19, less than three months after the first known case hit the U.S. COVID-19 gets political, excuse me. COVID-19 gets even more political as hundreds protest stay-at-home orders. This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. By now, you probably know the gist. We talk to someone who shares a personal experience, then I break it down, then we speak with an expert. This time, though, I want to flip it around a little. We're going to chat with an expert and then a friend of mine who will help us understand how the subject of today's episode plays out in people's lives. As we've discussed before, the burden of COVID-19 has fallen disproportionately on black and brown Americans. It almost feels like the people we've deemed essential, who drive the buses and stock the grocery shelves and cook the food, society has also deemed expendable. They are far more likely to be black and brown and far less likely to have health care, paid sick leave, or stable income. To break it down more, I reached out to someone who's been thinking about racial disparities and how to dismantle them for a long time. Dr. Lamar Hasbrook is a public health physician, past uh, state and local health official, and also formerly the executive director and CEO of the National Association of City and County Health Officials. Uh, really grateful to you, Dr. Hasbrook, for joining us. One of the most devastating aspects of what we've been learning about COVID-19 is just the gaping racial inequality in deaths to COVID-19. And I was hoping that you could help us understand How do we explain the fact that black Americans are dying at two, two and a half times the rate in a number of communities across the country? So uh, there is a saying that is really backed up by decades and decades of, of data, which basically goes like this. When white America gets a cold, black America gets the flu. And basically that saying means that every health outcome, every health outcome indicator from premature hospitalization to illness to uh, premature death to life expectancy to prognosis from diagnosis of cancer to adherence to blood pressure medications, you name it, um, it's going to be much worse and much more difficult and much more challenging in the African-American community for a number of reasons. Number one, um, there there are issues around pre-existing conditions. We know that that's really one of the things that puts people at higher risk for actually having complications of COVID-19, of dying of COVID-19. So that's an issue. There's less access to health and health care, be it less insurance rates or less ability and understanding how to navigate the system, how to get in there and get the care. And so often what can happen is that um, black folks can say, well, you know what, I can deal with this on my own for a little bit, number one, because I don't really feel comfortable navigating the health care system. Two, we know there's implicit bias, and we know that black and brown people get treated differently. The IOM report on equal treatment really showed us that. Um, And so I don't really trust these folks. Um, Maybe I can do some home remedies, you know, uh, you know, a lot of castor oil, you know, a lot of um, lemon tea with honey, you know, um, you know, you name it. Uh, some of those things that we, you know, Robitussin, you know, uh, that we talk about, you know, just kind of get us over. So when we present, We present later in the stage and things are more extreme, so it's not surprising that our outcomes then are going to be different. All of that kind of conspires together to make it one more challenging, two more difficult, and three, um, more hardly hit on these these communities. Yeah. You know, one of the one of the astounding things that uh, I came to really appreciate when I went from studying health disparities as a professor to trying to tackle them as a health commissioner 
with just how long in the making so many of the decisions that lead to these bad outcomes are. Can you speak a little bit to the way that structural racism uh, leads to these outcomes and um, how we ought to be thinking about and tracing its pattern with a particular focus on, you know, what we need to do to make sure that we're not this vulnerable again? Yeah, so it's very difficult to dismantle some of these structures that have been built um, and rooted in kind of deep-seated either racism or racial prejudice or sexism or classism um, because, you know, it's those ideas and those ideologies that really kind of sprung forward, um, you know, be it redlining or directing certain communities to certain areas of town, um, to setting up structures that are life-saving and life-preserving, such as social services or hospitals, to a maldistribution of things like liquor stores and fast food, chicken shacks and things like that. There's just certain things in certain neighborhoods, this is why the place is so important, that have been informed by these ideologies that are deeply rooted, deeply seated, and very historical. And so when you try to combat them, it's kind of first you got to try to change the mind, then you got to try to make the business case, and then you got to slowly dismantle certain things, building on assets, because every community has assets, you want to build on those, but many of these communities that we're talking about that are distressed really have a lot of deficits. And so we know that, you know, from one zip code to another, life expectancy can change for, you know, 15, 20 years, um, depending on what are those resources and those assets those uh, that are in that community that can really make the healthy choice and some of the healthy behaviors more of the easy choice. Um, and rather than just blaming folks and saying, well, you know, you're not eating well. Well, I'm not eating well, perhaps because I don't have, you know, a good livable wage that allows me to go get fruits and vegetables. And by the way, I don't have a fruit and vegetable grocery store in my catchment area on my bus route and things like that. So it's very easy to really understand, more difficult to begin to dismantle and to really make the case for elected officials who are looking at um, their own longevity, you know, what they need to do, quick wins, fast wins. And these aren't fast wins. These are things that have to really be, um, you know, um, uh, instigated um, by the ground level and really some groundswell, some you know, some some uh, some bottom-up planning and uh, in concert with officials and other folks who really have the power of the purse strings to start making some transformation. Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate that. I one of the the more frustrating lines of um, reasoning that I hear often is that, well, you know, uh, folks in the black community aren't making great choices about going out and uh, and going to work and. It's always frustrating me to hear that, right? Because I think about, you know, you and I are privileged enough to be able to work from home. We've got Wi-Fi, we've got computers, and we do work that uh, tends to flow around information, movement, and generation, uh, which you can do sitting at a desk. Um, a lot of folks are driving buses or fixing cars or 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 working in the back of a of a restaurant trying to make sure that that food goes out the door. And these folks can't do their job while also social distancing. And so, you know, you think about these stay-at-home orders and who can and can't comply with them, who who is able and has the privilege uh, to be able to, quote unquote, stay at home. Can you speak to, to sometimes how um, we confuse choices and, um, and behaviors and how that applies uh, differently, you know, in, in, in different communities based on access to wealth resources and, and you know, historical choices that, that place people in certain positions? Yeah. So we know that there's a very clear education gradient to health, which leads to income gradation to health. Um, and, and oftentimes, because we know that race and color is a proxy for those two things, income and employment, that there's a correlation with 
uh, your shade, uh, who you are as a person of color, and health. And a lot of this really has to do with the structures that we've talked about, but a lot of it has to do with how those structures really give someone or deprive someone of healthier choices that can lead to uh, wellness, longevity, and even meeting their own personal potential and personal power. So when you're talking about these folks who have to go out, as you said, you and I, we can work you know, from home, but if it's time to cook food, if it's time to drive the Uber, if it's dri time to drive the bus, I can't do that from home. But if I had a livable wage, um, and I was able to sock away some money, and if I had, you know, employer-sponsored uh, insurance, and I was able to go in um, on the early side of a condition rather than the later side of the condition, um, if I had, you know, some sick leave socked away or some personal leave socked away, I'd have a little bit more flexibility to make those healthier choices. Unfortunately, so many of us, um, so many of the folks in our community don't have those choices, and so it's either eat or wait in the soup line, um, and um, and oftentimes, you know, folks are going to choose um, what's consistent with their survival, which again is why sometimes some of these messages that we think, ah, oh, just eat healthier, just stop smoking, you know, they're related to stress and racism and other things. Hey, I gotta cope, man, I gotta survive. So survival is first and foremost for everybody, and then the survival of my family, um, and then when I have the luxury, I can do some things that are a little bit more healthy for myself. So, I mean, I think that's how it works. We're grateful for your time, and uh, we hope you stay safe and healthy. Um, also just wanted to make a shout out to, uh, your book, G street lion. I thought it was a really, really thoughtful, uh, take and look at, you know, your story and, and the implications, uh, of, uh, your experience for some of the things that, you know, we talk about today and some of the structures that are shaping how this pandemic is rolling through uh, our country. So, uh, really grateful for you. Um, thanks for making the time, uh, Lamar, uh, really, really appreciate your, uh, mentorship and wise words. Thanks again. Thank you, Abdul. Take care. We've talked a lot about the abstract experience of COVID-19. But for too many people, there's nothing abstract about having this disease or watching a loved one live through it. It's lived experience. But few have experienced both. I'm grateful that as far as I know, I haven't been infected with COVID, and neither has anyone in my immediate family. But my friend Corey has, and so did his father, who has serious diabetes. Thankfully, both he and his dad are feeling better. But I asked if he'd be willing to share his experience and what it means for how we're processing this pandemic more broadly. His insights after the break. Friends, if you're enjoying this podcast, I hope that you'll check out my book, Healing Politics. I diagnose an epidemic of insecurity underneath this pandemic. I hope you'll check it out at healingpoliticsbook.com. Corey is uh, an old friend of mine. We went to high school together, middle school and high school together, um, actually played high school football together and um, really grateful uh, to him for for joining us. He's going to share a story about his own experience with COVID-19 and then also his father's experience with COVID-19. Corey, can, can you tell us about when you first realized something was wrong? Obviously, at the time, we didn't know. But when we did, uh, we kind of like did a whodunit after my father had like got back to the point of uh, recovery, we had went all the way back to figure out how this all sort of started. And for him, he had bronchitis, I want to say maybe like beginning of December or something. And it was actually bronchitis, wasn't COVID. And he recovered. And then um, early March, yeah, he starts feeling not great, right? He's like, oh, I feel like I'm getting that bronchitis again. And for me, 
my muscles started hurting. Like I had just, I had never worked out and I finally decided to do like a full marathon, a full triathlon. I mean, my, my body was so sore. I was confused. I was like, well, maybe I slept wrong, but like, why does my body hurt like crazy? So, uh, I'm sitting there, my body's in pain. He's going through what seems like bronchitis. And then, you know, it starts to be the question of like, well, maybe he has COVID because of how he's reacting to this. And uh, he, he wakes up one day and, you know, he's blind from uh, his uh, his diabetes, diabetic retinopathy, took his eyesight. So normally he's pretty good about getting around, but he's in his own house and he's sitting in one of these breakfast chairs and he's like, I, I don't know where I am. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm so disoriented. And I'm like, you have to go to the hospital. Like at this point you have to go. There is no question about it so he i want to say like um that all started mid mid march where do you think he might have been exposed this is crazy we did we went back and did the whodunit he went to a bar with one of his friends um and someone in there had it and everybody in this bar is like exposed at this point um the doorman who works there he died the owner was hospitalized. I want to say like six or seven people were hospitalized and like four people died from this one night that he was there. And so we've traced it back to it was probably that night is where he was exposed to it for sure. What was it like for you? Uh, what what were the symptoms and, and how did you feel? So I have diabetes. I've had it since I was uh, 16. Uh, type two, not type one. And I'm asthmatic. I feel like that's a great way to, you know, to preface it to understand like I have underlying health issues, but I'm still young and healthy enough. Um, so first it was the muscle aches. I mean, Abdul, I cannot explain to you how sore I was. Like it, I've never been this sore. And, you know, I, I work out, I exercise, I take the breaks, I work out. This was a soreness that was like deep into my core. And I was like, oh, this is horrible. I mean, getting out of bed was hard. Like I felt like I was 80 years old. And then it was just the fatigue. I'm tired all the time. And then I'm just like, I'm trying to help my dad out, but I'm sort of like feeling sweaty and sick myself. Um, the breathing was fine because I take like a daily steroid for my asthma, which I think was like pretty helpful. Mm. Um, when my dad was in the hospital for the week, I was by myself being sick. And basically it was just letting my dog out and sleeping. I couldn't get up. I couldn't eat. I couldn't move every night. I'm talking about, I'm sweating through four or five sets of clothes and my sheets. I mean, I'm drenched. The entire bed is soaked. I'm just like, I can't do anything. And I thought I was okay as like my road to recovery. But, um, I want to say Monday was the first day that I felt 100% back to myself. And that was, you know, f around 45 days or something from, I think, exposure. And it was just, it was a nightmare to say the very least nightmare, hmm. you know? And, um, and your dad's course, um, what was his course like? How long was his hospitalization? Did he, did he have to go on a ventilator? No, luckily he didn't because we got him there early enough. Um, so basically he had renal failure from dehydration. His kidneys had failed on him from this. You know what I mean? He's, he's sick and they think pneumonia is starting to get into his lungs. So they put him on the antibiotics. Not sure if it's going to work, but luckily because he got there early enough, they were able to get ahead of it and not playing from behind. So for the most part, his hospital experience was just being really sick, laying in a bed. And then, you know, obviously he couldn't see, so we couldn't explain what was going on around him, but um, just nurses coming in, checking on him, making sure he's taking his medications and just resting. And uh, he's feeling better? 
Yes, we're both back I'm to pretty to much 100. Yeah. yeah, dude. I mean, it's it's a blessing on so so many fronts. But I also feel like we are, you know, it's it's the reason that he survived is because we sort of come from a place of privilege. You know, it's like we I had doctors on deck. You know, 15 or 16 of actual doctors who were like, any advice you need? What do you need? Let me know. Give me numbers. Tell me these things. So I mean, it's a it's a, it was it's. Yeah. It's a blessing. We made it through it, man, the way we did. So well, Corey, just... I want to ask you, you know, uh, you and I have shared a couple of conversations about structural racism um, and the way it, it shapes everything we experience. Um, you know, we've seen in terms of the the death rates in Michigan uh, and frankly all over the country, um, substantially higher rates of death among black Americans. And, uh, you know, you and your, your family are black. And I, I wanted to ask you how you reflect on that. You guys had great outcomes, um, gratefully, as, as far as being able to have access, but so many other folks don't. And I wanted to ask, you know, what, you, what your thoughts are on why that disparity is occurring and, you know, what we need to do about it. Okay. So uh, you're in a country where you're part of it, but like you're not part of it, you know, so you get, mm. um, so you get enough help if it helps other people do it, but you don't get help genuinely from the idea of you being you, you being just labeled as a regular American like everybody else. You have to be African-American, right? So you're already set a little different. So as time has passed, I feel like black people and the government or institution institutions that have parts of power, they don't really get along. Flint is probably a good way to explain that. Mm-hmm. I know you're big involved in that. You know how that goes, that these people are dying and nothing changes, nothing gets better. So how do they trust the government in that situation? And now it's like they're sick. How do you trust the government to give you the right information? So it's I come from a place of both privilege, but I also get to see, you know, the other side of that of how people live. And it's like multi-generational households because there's no wealth, right, in the community. So you have the grandmother, the parents, the kids, their kids, all in the same house. Then you have mm-hmm. food deserts. So the health overall is bad. It's just liquor store food, which is uh, sugary drinks, pop, and then fast food, which obviously you know is a mm-hmm. recipe for disaster for the overall health of a person. Mm-hmm. Then the, it comes mm-hmm. down to information. When we grew up, we valued education not in the idea that education is important, but from the idea that we will take information that we have not ourselves experienced and believe that to be the truth and live and work as if that is the truth. And so Mm. in a situation where you don't value education or knowledge being passed on to you from other things, you take knowledge from people who you know, or they know someone who cured them. Like one Mm -hmm. of the big signs for- You trust. Right. And one of the big signs for my- old man was I knew he needed to go to the hospitals when he reaches for states of desperation because he doesn't like the hospital per se. So he he's like, hey, you know, one of my friends sent me this video that's on Facebook that if you inhale steaming water that's boiled with garlic and citrus peels, that this will cure COVID-19. And so there's a lot of people who believe this. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what did you say? And he was like, well, we just need to try it. I'm like, you need to go to the hospital because that's not going to cure you. If you really think you're that far gone, inhaling garlic-infused steam is not going to save your life. But there's enough people out there who believe this is the case, that like this information, because they don't trust the government to tell them to do these things or go. So someone in the house gets sick, seven people in a house, they're all sick. Then it's like, okay, well, now 
Are they going to go to the hospital? Probably not, because one, they know that people they know have died in hospitals, and two, they don't trust authority to do the right thing for them because they've never done the right thing for them. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to have the police tell me what to do. The police treat me bad all the time. I don't trust Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. So they end up in a situation where they have to rely on people who might not have the best information to help them through these things, and they end up just dying from all this. You know, it's like, my dad had followed that rules, he would have died. You you had a huge impact in... Uh, our community of friends, um, because you you wrote your story and you shared it, and um, and I know a lot of folks. It was the first time that COVID nineteen became real. It went from being an abstract thing that you heard about in the news to oh my god, this person who I know, I can describe their face and their voice and their laugh, and they had COVID nineteen. This must be real. Can can you tell me about some of the responses that you got from folks with whom you shared your story? Oh yeah yeah yeah. Okay, so um, first outpouring of love everyone's like oh my i'm praying for you your dad everything i just i feel so bad this that the other and then there's some people who it hits them because they have parents you know and it's like when i say my parents oh that could be my parents or my grandparents and so then it starts with like i'm so sorry to like a place of fear and then and abdul i kid you not this is this is the crazy part of it people start asking me for advice medically and i'm like i'm not a doctor so you're clear and i'm like look these are the kind of things that i sort of understand from having conversations with other doctors again privilege but this is what we kind of understand and these are things to do i mean obviously avoid everything like i was trying to be out not around this way before it got out because i had been following it since they first talked about it in november and it was like i didn't want to be part of this it just so happens got caught up in any way the irony of that but like now people are asking me what do i do well you know my my sister's at risk or my, or my dad, he's older. Like, should I do this? Should I do that? And I'm like, you know, this is terrible that you're looking to me for information when there's so much from actual doctors, actual medical professionals, actual people who have treat, I mean, have looked at this, ask them, but they don't they ask me because I've been through it. So all of a sudden I become maybe an authority to some people. It's like, I don't want that ability because that's not, that's a responsibility that's huge. And that's not, and like, I shouldn't be the person that you ask, but I think that that's what happens, right? Is that in a place where you're scared, or if this guy's been through it, he may be able to tell me something that I can like protect me. Um, sure. So it it started as prayers moved to, um, just general words of support. Then it was like a little bit of fear. And then it came down to like people asking like, what should I do? Or, um, you know, a couple of people who did get it after they ended up, the first person they reached out to was me like, Hey, you know, I got it too. And, you know, you know, can you give me some tips or what do you think of this at the other? And I obviously tried to be helpful with my experience, but it's just like, I mean, the, the response, it, the first part was great. The second part was kind of scary, you know, because it was like, I don't want to be I don't I feel scared being responsible for information that you take from me as the truth, because, as you know, nobody knows what's going on. So, like, my my experience could have been 100 percent different than someone else's. They might have the same symptoms or it might be worse. And so you don't want to tell them, especially if it's not a medical professional. It's like, look, man, if you feel sick, go to the hospital. That's the best I think I can tell you is don't avoid this. Get ahead of it, not work from behind. So, I mean, it's it was a. It was a it was a trip, you know, from start to finish. Wide range of emotions, wide range of emotions. Well, we're grateful that uh, that you're healthy, that your dad's healthy, and uh, really grateful to you for um, sharing your story and, and your dad's story, but also um, wisdom on on why this is hitting society the way it is and and how we're responding to it. Um, hope that uh, that that you and he stay well. Um, it was really good to catch up and uh, and you know wishing you. Uh, continued health and, and good safety. If there's any silver lining in the cloud of having had it, uh, at least we think um, 
based on the way the body usually works, that you, you're, you're sort of good to go for a while. So uh, let's hope that it, it does work that way. Oh, yeah. No, and I uh, – that's, that's, that's what I'm happy about. But at the same time, I, I treat it like I have never had it, and I still protect myself. Gloves, mask. If I, I, I try not to leave the house, but if I do, I am covered head to toe. I make sure that I'm covered and that I'm protected. I don't walk out here like I'm, I can't catch it because I don't know if I'm – you know what I'm saying? I don't know if I'm still – if I give it to anybody else, so you always have to be safe. That's the one thing I want to say is it, keep washing your hands and keep staying safe until, you know, 2022, just to make sure that we're all going to be out yep. of this. Yep. That's good advice. Well, I thank you, man. I thank you. I thank you for having me on your show. No, it was my privilege. Throughout this podcast, it's been critical to me to stay objective about the government's handling of this pandemic. I don't sugarcoat things, but I don't pull punches either. In that spirit, I want to talk specifically to the president's woeful behavior this past week. Throughout this pandemic, the president has gone out of his way to scapegoat China for COVID-19. In doing so, he's used language that is insulting and demeaning to ethnically Chinese people. I would like to begin by announcing some important developments in our war against the Chinese virus. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot of people say it's racist. It's not racist at all, no. And then on Friday, Trump retweeted a tweet that said, let's see if authorities enforce social distancing for mosques during Ramadan as they did churches during Easter. When he was asked about it on Saturday during his daily COVID-19 rally from the White House, he said, They go after Christian churches, but they don't tend to go after mosques. And I don't want them to go after mosques. Yes, Mr. President. As a Muslim American, I certainly agree. And more dangerous still, we've seen, quote-unquote, protests against governor stay-at-home orders. What patriots? I'm sure the Founding Fathers would be so confused. I'm just thinking the face palm emoji with a powdered wig. And this is what Donald Trump had to say about it. Are you concerned, though, that people coming out in protest are going to spread uh, COVID to other people? They're congregating in ways that health experts have said they should not. No, these are people expressing their views. I, I see where they are and I see the way they're working. They seem to be very responsible people to me. Look, I know stay-at-home orders are hard, and the economic consequences are affecting everyone. But we've lost 40,000 American lives. That's the equivalent of a 9-11 terror attack every 10 days for three months. And the best the president can do is use this moment to sow division and hatred and actively encourage people to do the very things that are spreading the disease, causing more illness and more death. Meanwhile, first responders still don't have the PPE they need. And we're woefully low on tests. The federal government remains missing in action. But on a brighter note, we'll be talking to Andrew Yang about the $1,200 checks and universal basic income more generally. But we want to know how you're spending your check. Email me a voice memo at americadissected at crooked.com and you might hear your own voice with Andrew Yang. That's it for today. If you'd like to support organizations leading the fight to support our most vulnerable during this pandemic, Donate to Crooked Media's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. I'll see you on Friday with another update. (laughs) 
America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Takayasuzawa and Alex Ugiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El Sayed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>